hello there in podcast land. This is Bryden's Lawyers Law Pod Episode 8, and I am Lee Hedgemantellis, the principal of Bryden's Lawyers. Now, Bryden's Lawyers is well known, of course, as a very large and successful personal injury firm, and I take some credit for that, having been with the firm now for over 30 years and having advanced the cause, particularly in personal injury litigation. And there are a number of individual disciplines within the personal injury field that many may or may not be aware of. For example, motor accident claims, workers' compensation claims, superannuation and TBD claims and the like. But today I would like to speak specifically about one area of personal injury litigation which is often regarded as the most difficult and complex and one that requires a very specialised set of skills. So allow me to introduce to you the head of my medical negligence division, Larissa Atkinson. Welcome Larissa. Thank you Lee. I'm pleased to be here. Is this uh, your first podcast? Yes it is. Your thoughts so far? How's it going? It's exciting and I'm glad to be talking to everyone out there more generally rather than just the people who make inquiries on an everyday basis. Excellent. Now, with respect to medical negligence, I think I got it right, didn't I, when I said it's a very specialised and complex and complicated area of the law? Absolutely. It's an area which requires not only a very high legal ability, but an area where you also have to have an understanding of another profession, which is the medical profession, which is also an area where those professionals specialise. So it requires very broad scientific knowledge, which has to be kept up to date. It requires a lot of attention to detail, a lot of time-consuming input, as well as it's a very emotional area because our clients have been injured by someone who they trusted. Absolutely. There's a lot of misunderstanding within the broader community about medical negligence, and we'd like to get through it in some detail today to explain how it all works. But let's start at the beginning. The name itself bespeaks negligence. So the mere fact that a a patient is unhappy with the outcome of a procedure, whether it be surgical or otherwise, that is not in itself sufficient to establish a claim. There actually has to be some negligence capable of proof. Sadly, no. Even in some cases where we can prove the first element of negligence, a client can't succeed with the claim. So to explain that answer a little bit more, when we're looking at a negligence claim against a professional, in this case, a medical professional, the three things that we have to prove are that the medical professional has breached his or her duty of care. And that duty of care is assessed from the point of view of a standard of care set by reference to peer professional opinion. So we have to prove that a doctor has not acted in a way which meets the standard of the majority of professionals acting in that area at the time that the treatment was provided. So that can be very difficult because as a science-based profession, what is reasonable and what is understood about medicine is always changing. The second thing that a client needs to prove if they want to make a medical negligence claim is that the doctor's breach of duty of care is causally connected to the injuries that they want to make a claim about. And the third thing is those injuries and disabilities themselves. So this is where we sometimes encounter a very sad problem for our clients because we can't prove that the outcome is connected to the breach of duty of care. This is often the case in cases such as cancer cases where we can't prove that a doctor's delay in diagnosis has changed the outcome. So it's a very difficult area, a very emotional area, and sometimes a highly unsatisfactory area from the point of view of the patient who has been wronged. But we are very happy to be able to succeed in difficult circumstances a lot of the time. Negligence is not the only thing that we look at in the medical negligence division though, so it's a little bit of a misnomer, but it is what most people would feel called towards, so that's its name. There are 
other things that we can look at for clients such as claims involving what we call as lawyers intentional torts. So there are claims about assault or battery which is a claim where you as the patient haven't consented to treatment that has been performed upon you and that's caused an injury. There are also product liability claims in the area of medical negligence that we deal with. This would be say for instance something like you had a hip replacement which ended up being faulty and that has caused you injury. So there are lots of different things we actually look at besides negligence in the medical negligence division. Okay well that's excellent. Let us break that down a little bit further. You referenced peer professional opinion and of course that is the standard by which the breach of duty alleged is determined. Many people think that the evidence is put before a judge and ultimately the judge decides the standard of care, but it's not. He, he has to reference, or he or she has to reference, the expert opinion that is available, which bespeaks peer professional opinion. So for example, if we're suing an orthopedic surgeon, the standard by which his conduct or her conduct is judged is the standard set by peer professional opinion, that is other orthopedic surgeons. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, Lee. And this is another area where medical negligence is different to other areas of law. In medical negligence, we're very much restricted by expert opinion. So because the judge is a lawyer and doesn't understand medicine, the judge has to be led by the expert opinions put forth in the case. And these are from independent doctors who agree to give opinions in medical negligence cases about all of the things that the person making the claim has to prove and has put in issue in their claim. So this can get very detailed and quite divisive sometimes when we've got multiple experts who don't agree. Sometimes in a case we might have five experts commenting for each defendant and there might be multiple defendants such as three or five or more which means we end up having a very large number of experts all arguing about what was the majority opinion and approach to treatment at that time. And that's the relevant point too as well. It is peer professional opinion relevant at the time that the treatment was provided. Yes, so we can have claims involving injuries that were latent so that the patient didn't realise that they'd been injured until much later. So sometimes we might be looking at the medicine that was applicable 5, 10 or even 15 years previously when we're looking at what standard the defendant doctor is being judged by, which can become very interesting, particularly in those areas where there have been large medical advances in the meantime. All right, so so we've established breach of duty of care by reference to peer professional opinion. Then, of course, in order to establish negligence, we also have to show injury, loss or damage. Then there has to be a link between the breach of duty and the injury, loss or damage, which we call the causal link. There has to be, the, the question of causation needs to be addressed. So the breach of duty of care must be causative of the injury, loss or damage. Are there instances therefore where there is breach of duty but no injury, loss or damage can be established? Yes, this happens quite frequently, unfortunately. I mentioned before that a, a cancer case is often where this occurs. So for instance, say if we have a defendant general practitioner who failed to act upon some blood results which indicated that a client had, say, prostate cancer and needed to be referred to a specialist for treatment. It is very often the case because of the excellent treatments for prostate cancer that the client may have been poorly treated by their GP in that their treatment was delayed by one, two or even more years, but the outcome for them 
has been the same because the treatments are so good. So unless we can show that there has been a material difference in the outcome of the treatment, even though the client has been effectively wronged by their doctor, they wouldn't be able to establish a medical negligence claim because we couldn't show that there was an injury or any losses to claim for. And that question of causation, establishing that causal link, is a difficult concept to explain to a lot of clients. It's a very emotional situation and one which is one of the most difficult parts of what we do in medical negligence law because often we as the medical negligence lawyers are the only people who our clients have ever really had a chance to discuss their situation, how they feel about it, how it's impacted them in any great detail and having to, after spending a lot of time and trying our very best to establish a case for our clients have to say that we don't think that the claim will be successful is one of the most difficult things that we do. And of course, as lawyers, we rely on evidence. And in the case of a medical negligence claim, that is the expert evidence that we require to establish peer professional opinion. So before even commencing a claim, we need to satisfy ourselves that there is reasonable prospects of success in relation to the proposed proceedings on the basis of provable facts. How do you go about establishing that? So the first step in any medical negligence claim is to obtain the relevant clinical records. We then have a look at all of these records and check whether we think there's any red flags. So anything that we think indicates that there's a problem with the claim or something that the patient may not have even been aware of that the doctor has recorded. So we form an initial view about the prospects of the success of the claim based on our client's instructions and the review of the clinical records. We will also do some research to understand the medicine involved because as we discussed before, it changes all the time. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the medicine applicable at the time that is relevant to that particular claim. We would then have a discussion with our client about our findings and decide together whether we move forwards to obtaining an expert medico-legal opinion. The experts, like all doctors, unfortunately charge a lot of money for their opinion because they spend a lot of time looking at the case. By the time you've had both us and a doctor look at your clinical records, if you're looking at investigating medical negligence claim, your clinical records will have been examined more carefully than they've probably ever been examined before, including while you were receiving treatment. So it's a very time consuming and detailed process. We would then have a teleconference with the expert, having provided the expert with the clinical records for their review with a letter of instruction from us telling the expert what we see the issues as and what the legal questions that they would need to answer for our client so that the client knows whether they might have reasonable prospects of success with their claim. All right, well, that's excellent and very helpful. Let's just take some examples of medical negligence claims that we've dealt with. Now, at one extreme, some of them are, are very obvious. A patient goes in to have an arthroscopy or a reconstruction done on the left knee. The doctor operates on the right. Well, that's a clear-cut case of negligence, if not assault, yep. and bat of course. At the other end of the scale, we have what we call failure to warn cases. Now, these are very difficult and they deal with, don't they, the absence of any direct negligence as such, but an allegation that the patient had not been properly informed as to the risks involved and therefore had not made an informed decision. Is that, a, is that an accurate summary of, of that type of case? It is, and they are very common. Almost always when you have a look back at the records of a discussion before a particular procedure is performed, you will either find that the doctor has recorded pages and pages of warnings which the patient 
says were never provided during that particular consultation or you will look back and find that the doctor has made no record whatsoever of the warnings that were given but the patient will say that certain things were and weren't discussed. It's always a very unclear situation on the notes which creates a difficulty for the patient because a judge will find it very difficult to make a finding in the patient's favour without some indication in the clinical records that the patient's version of what occurred during that relevant conversation was the correct one. One of the difficulties created by the law is that the patient can't give evidence about what they would have done if they had been advised correctly and this is the area in which unfortunately many failure to warn cases come to grief because the finding is that the patient would have proceeded with the treatment anyway because the risks were small when compared to the benefits that the patient stood to gain from a successful procedure. A patient is almost always seeking treatment because they have a problem which they want addressed, which creates an unfair imbalance in the failure to warn cases because the patient always has an interest in the procedure going ahead. It, it may be a slightly different consideration where we're dealing with elective surgery, of course. It is different in those circumstances. It's much easier to prove that the failure to warn is connected causally to the injuries that have been sustained. All right, well, we've recovered our expert evidence and we've prosecuted the claim successfully and we've established negligence on the part of the treating health professional to the satisfaction of the court, then we turn to damages. And of course, like all other personal injury claims, the successful litigant in a medical negligence claim is entitled to recover their common law damages, modified slightly by the Civil Liability Act, but largely unrestricted. What sort of damages could compensation does the successful litigant recover? The first area in which a successful litigant will obtain damages is what's called non-economic loss. It's a rather the undemonstrative title but what that means is that you're getting damages for your pain and suffering, the damage done to your body, the poor experience that you've had and the changes on your life more generally. Those are all of the damages that don't have price tags in the real world. And it's one of those areas where, particularly in medical negligence, it's an area of damages that our clients are very much interested in recovering. Other sorts of damages that most claimants would be seeking to recover would be their past and future medical expenses and all of the things associated with continuing treatment and out-of-pocket expenses, their compensation for income loss both in the past and the future, their loss of superannuation benefits both in the past and in the future, any care and assistance whether that be provided by a friend or family member for free or whether that is paid care. Other things that the injured people may recover in more serious cases might be things like assistive equipment such as wheelchairs or electric beds and those sorts of things, home modifications, vehicle modifications or anything to do with more serious disabilities such as having an assistant to go on holiday with you because you're no longer able to go on holiday by yourself. So damages in medical negligence claims are very much tailored to every particular person's situation. It's not really possible to compare one claimant with another when it comes to damages because everybody has a very different situation and has been affected in a different way. And we look very carefully at how each person's been affected and what they should recover in damages to, as far as the law can in terms of compensatory damages, put that person back into the position that they were before they were injured. So generally speaking, the successful litigant in a medical negligence claim will receive proper compensation compared to, say, for example, what the injured motorist or injured worker would receive in a motor accident or a workers' compensation claim, which is a disaster, but that's a subject for another uh, podcast. 
Absolutely. The damages in medical negligence are not as arbitrary as they've become in other areas of personal injury. The main restrictions that we deal with in medical negligence are those relating to how the award of damages for non-economic loss is assessed, the restrictions on the recovery of damages for gratuitous care and assistance, and also those that enter into restricting a recovery of economic loss for the higher earners. All right, now strict time limits apply, of course, to the prosecution of a medical negligence claim like all personal injury litigation, and that is three years from when the cause of action becomes discoverable. Now that can be a difficult concept as well, but let's just take three years as a starting point. At what point should someone come and see a lawyer here at Bryden's Lawyers about a potential medical negligence claim? As soon as you become aware that you might have one essentially. Medical negligence claims take a lot of time to investigate. So realistically, we would allow nine to 12 months for us to even investigate the claim and tell you whether or not you might want to proceed forwards and commence a claim. So it's not something that should be left to the last minute because it does take a lot of time in terms of preparation before you get to the point where you can commence your claim. Having said that, we do often find in medical negligence that patients don't realise that something has happened that they might be able to make a claim for until a long time after, which is where the discoverability provisions in the Limitation Act help people in the medical circumstance more than they might do in a traditional accident scenario. So as soon as you become aware that you might have a claim, make an inquiry. We're happy to talk to everyone who thinks that they might have suffered an injury, which they can make a claim about, and we'll be able to tell you in our conversation, either in person or over the phone, whether your claim is worth looking into further. That has been my experience as well, that clients who are concerned as to the outcome of a procedure or treatment provided will make the effort to come and see a solicitor. And the fact that they're motivated to do so clearly indicates that they believe that something went wrong. They're uncertain as to what it was or why it occurred, but they just want clarification. Larissa, this has been extraordinarily helpful and comprehensive. Thank you so much for your contribution today. Hopefully all of those who are listening have found that it's just as helpful and illuminating. It is a difficult area of law, there is no doubt, but it's one that requires specialised skills and someone like you, and I can't recommend you highly enough to all our listeners, if they do have any reason or concern with respect to any treatment, to contact Bride's Lawyers as soon as possible for that free initial consultation, just so as to allow us to make an assessment as to whether there is any cause for proceeding further with the matter, and that time the client can make an informed decision about their claim. So thank you again very much. And to all of those who are listening, thank you again. If you have any particular questions that you would like to pose to either me or Larissa, please do not hesitate to contact us. If there's any particular area that you would like us to discuss in our next podcast, please email us directly at lawpod at brydens.com.au. And do not forget to follow us on all our social media platforms, be that Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So until next time, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Larissa to all of you faithful listeners of LawPod.